I am compelled to preach a different message this morning than the one I had planned. The one I had planned was about the eternal kingdom of Christ, the eternal land inheritance promised to Israel, the rule and reign of Christ in Jerusalem on the earth for a thousand years, and the new Jerusalem coming down, which will be our heavenly realm forever. But see, I want you and all your children there. And so we're going to hit the pause button on that, and we're going to preach God's family. And two points in that, God's marriage and God's parenting, which will produce, third point perhaps, God's children and His design. So God's family, from the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we find God's family begin to unfold in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, male and female, he created them, says verse 27, male and female. The unbiblical worldview has progressed. The unbiblical worldview once disdained marriage treated it lightly, scoffed at it, then it embraced perversion, sexual perversion of all sorts and kinds. Then the unbiblical worldview went a step further to reject even gender, to reject God's created order that he created male and female. And then he brought that first male and first female together. And by the way, if you have a professing Christian teacher, professor, preacher that does not believe in a literal Adam and a literal Eve, then you should be suspect as to whether he believes in a literal Jesus, no matter what else he says. We believe God's word from the first verse to the last. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And that's what he created woman to be, a helper comparable to man. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Adam had the authority vested in him from God to name all the creatures of the earth. Verse 20, so Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. For Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Adam names all the critters of the earth and Adam names the entire gender that was created to be a helpmate to man. And he names that gender woman taken out of man because literally the scripture says she was taken out of man. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh because she was taken out of man. She shall be called woman. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And that is the normal course of the world. Not every man and every woman will be married, but that's the normal course of the world. About 99% of them will be. And that's God's design. But the further we get from the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of the Bible who has revealed himself and his plan for family, the more we disdain marriage and leave it off altogether or make a mockery of it. 
as we have men marrying men and men marrying three women and two men marrying one woman and insanity. That's not marriage. It's been called mirage by some. That's a kind thing to say. Mirage. It's blasphemy. It's rebellion. It's perversion. Again, Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God instituted marriage. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. So Adam gives names to all the creatures of the earth. Adam gives name to the gender woman taken out of man. Adam gives name to Eve. She shall be called Eve because she is the mother of all living. She is our great, 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 great grandmother. We're all family. We're all family. One blood. Racism is a lie because we're all one race, the race of Adam and Eve. So we're just hating family members if we engage in what's called, wrongly, racism. So what is established here? The family is established here for the glory of God. Gender is established here for the glory of God. Marriage is established here for the glory of God. And the husband is to lead in righteousness and the wife is to follow in righteousness as helpmate. In Ephesians chapter 5, we find the New Testament speaking to this glorious thing called marriage. Glorious men, glorious women, marriage. Don't belittle your wives. Don't belittle your marriage. She's not the old lady. She's not the ball and chain. She is your blessing. God gave her to you as a blessing to cherish and love and to wash with the water of the word that you might present her spotless to Christ. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. That's radical, but it's not misogyny. It's radical design. And it will produce radical blessing by God's grace. It's not misogyny. It's not anti-woman. It's not oppression. Where do you get female oppression? Everywhere the word of God does not prevail in the hearts and minds of men. That's where you get female oppression. Where do you find women as secondary citizens or, or as less than human even, devalued in places where the word of God does not prevail. What book has brought the greatest blessing to womanhood on the planet and all the history of mankind? The Bible. Where the Bible goes and prevails, women prosper. That is a truth. Where Christianity prevails, women prosper. Have Christian men or professing Christian men sometimes maltreated women? Absolutely. But is feminism a blessing to women? No. It liberates them to serve the devil. It liberates them to become perpetual sex objects waiting for their next appointment at the abortion clinic. It liberates them out of even God's design for male and female into what we're seeing now in our society, a vast capitulation to lesbianism. That which is unnatural, Romans says. And so wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, 
as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. That's a radical call and a radical submission in all things righteous. Nothing unrighteous, ladies. Nothing foolish or wicked. But as the husband is saying, follow me as I follow Christ in a reasonable manner, by all means, follow him as he follows Christ. And in so many of the important things of life as, as he's making decisions, support those decisions. Are you his helpmate? Absolutely. Should he value your counsel? Absolutely. He'd be a fool not to. Are you to rule over him? As our current culture says, you know, happy wife, happy life, which ultimately means wife rule. It's a subversion of God's order. No, no. A happy Christian wife should be happy in God's design for God's glory. And men, we should be laboring to make them happy. We should be laboring to make it incredibly easy for them to submit unto us as unto the Lord, knowing that we are Adam's brood with a sin nature and will fail, but praying that we would stand like men and provide and protect and bless our wives. So wives, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands. Not every husband and not every man. Some people go wild with this, and every woman is to submit to every man in some radical way. And, and like women can't even play a board game with men because it'd be wrong for you to win. If one of you women beat me in Scrabble, you know, that, that will just... Ooh, Shame me as a man. I must be proven superior in every way to every woman. What nonsense is that? And I'm not superior in every way to every woman by any means. Male headship in the home doesn't mean we're superior in intellect and sometimes even in brawn, which is, men, to our shame for the most part, right? Let's labor to at least excel in brawn over our ladies, okay? We've been given testosterone for a reason. We may not be able to build up our intellect beyond God's initial gifting, but... Let's endeavor to be men with some strength of flesh and mind and above all heart. Much love for the brides God has given us and will yet give us if you're not married. Therefore, again, verse 24, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Consider, men, how the how the Lord Jesus has loved the church, how the Lord Jesus has protected the church, how the Lord Jesus provides for the church, how the Lord Jesus died for the church. It should be incredibly easy for the church to love Jesus. Let's labor by the grace of God to make it easy for our wives to love us. Now may our wives be gracious and know we are but men. <laughs> and we will fail. And as the Lord has been gracious to them, as women who are daughters of Eve who will fail. They should be gracious to us. And our failing should not justify a subversion of God's order. If our failings are radical enough, it may then involve elders of the church. It may even involve police if our failings are radical enough. But let's not be quick to point out error, to point out failure, to point out difference of opinion as a justification for subverting God's order and design for our mutual blessing. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. What a, again, astounding command. 
the command to wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, astonishing in our day and our culture. But this command, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Again, astonishing in our era of perpetual adolescence where men never grow up. And it's always about them and their hobbies and their things and not about them loving their wife as Christ loved the church, not about them loving their children, raising up godly offspring, not even about them providing. We've got a lot of bearded women today. I'm not talking about actual females taking pills to subvert God's order. I'm talking about men with beards who act like women, who will not lead, who will not provide, who will not protect. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You hear that, men? You love your wife, you're loving yourself. Do you want to hate yourself? Do you want to harm yourself? Don't love your wife as Christ loved the church. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's in quotes. Verse 31, Ephesians 5 is in quotes. Why? Because it goes back to... Genesis, the foundation, we have not left that. Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God's basic design for the marriage right there. Are there details? Yes. Are there going to be some gray areas? Yes. Are you going to have to come down on one side or the other in the midst of some gray area of life, some decision needs to be made? Yes. But let's labor to keep it as black and white as possible, to keep it as biblical as possible, to keep ourselves well within the design of God. And we will find blessings there individually as families. Let's go back a step further. Individually as men individually as women, individually as husbands, individually as wives, individually as fathers and mothers. We will find blessing as we commit ourselves to God's design for family and God's design for marriage. Colossians 3.18 is kind of the marital relationship defined for the simple mind. If, if I lost you, this is it in brief, in, in summary. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit unto your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Wives, submit unto your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. If both wife and husband are laboring the majority of the time, prayerfully to walk in the power of the Spirit, embracing God's role for them, God's design for them, in the vast majority of time, you're going to have a beautiful marriage. As one or the other or both lack commitment or consistency to God's design, the greater suffering 
the greater trial, the greater hardship, the greater difficulty you're going to have in your marriage. And the design of God is that the husband and wife, like two rocks in a tumbler, would tumble in that covenant of marriage together, laboring to walk in the light of the word, breaking off the sharp angles and becoming polished and beautiful. The marriage is to be a sanctifying work in our lives. And so when there are the hardships, when there are the new fresh chips that are smoothing you down, sanctifying you out, be thankful. Be thankful. And sometimes you're the sharp-edged one, and sometimes the other may be the sharp-edged one, or maybe it's both being sharp-edged. But be thankful that this is part of God's plan for your sanctification. Marriage is perhaps the most sanctifying work God does in our life until perhaps he gives us children. But one precedes the other, or should. Now, in order to love our wives, we need a definition of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8 is that definition of love. Men, many, 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 many moons ago, oh my. Last Sunday, I told some poor kid that was showing me they were this old, I said, well, how old am I? And I flashed my zillion fingers at them to represent my age. And my daughter, unfortunately, was, was watching, and she said, Dad, you're off a year. It's one more year. And I truly was legitimately off a year. Oh, oh, wow. Oh, yeah, okay. So they're stacking up on me, and I'm losing track. But many, many moons ago, I realized that I needed to love my wife. And on occasion, I forget. But when I'm conscious of needing to love my wife, that's a great thing to be conscious of. But then how do I define that? How do I love my wife? Am I loving my wife? 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8 is the definition of love. And so long, long, long ago, when I was freshly saved and my wife was yet saved and we were unequally yoked and we had the duress of the Marine Corps in our lives and separation after separation after separation brought about through deployment after deployment after deployment, I figured out I'm going to need to love this dear woman or this isn't going to work. And therefore, I went with humility and desperation to the Word of God to learn how to love her. And I will also tell you this, I went Lord's Day by Lord's Day with humility and desperation, holding on to Christ's church like a life ring, knowing that I needed truth, she needed truth, our marriage needed truth, our faith needed truth, and if we didn't get that truth, we might not make it missing a Sunday to the next. And had it not been for God's design and blessing us through the local church and the ministry of the word, and even just the example of other saints and their marriages who were more mature and walking before us, we would not have made it. We wouldn't have made it. And so I praise God to this day for his church, an imperfect church with an imperfect preacher, with imperfect marriages, that was a perfect blessing to us. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, love suffers long. Anyone ever suffer in marriage? Raise your hand, unless your wife's here. No, we've all suffered in marriage. We've all suffered in marriage at some point. And you will suffer in marriage at some point. But love suffers long, long. When you stood up before God and men and said, till death do us part, you said that because of the word of God. Because marriage is a lifelong covenant till death do us part. And that's not a threat. 
It's a covenant promise. And so love suffers long. Now, as we embrace prayerfully in the power of the Spirit of God, God's design for us as husband and wife, we suffer less. But love suffers long, regardless of what the other spouse is doing. If the other spouse isn't pulling their biblical weight, embracing God's design, then you must commit yourself 100% to the success of that marriage for the glory of God. Because every marriage is a picture of the indissoluble union of Christ and His church, which cannot be broken. For the glory of God, each individual spouse commits themselves to the success of that marriage. Because we live, we breathe, we exist, and we die for the glory of God. We will not selfishly jump ship from our marriage because of suffering Because life is brief. And most of the time, if you'll stick it out and you'll get 100% on board, you embracing God's design for you as a husband or wife 100%, despite what the other one is doing, most of the time that suffering will be brief as well. It will end. And joy will come. Marriages that seem to be doomed are rescued all the time. Marriages that have ended are rescued as one or the other or both of them wake up to God's commands and say, wait, I've sinned. And humble themselves and commit themselves to obeying God for the glory of God. But hear me, most of us got married, and you can raise your hand if you want. I'll raise my hand. Most of us got married selfishly. We got married because the sun and the moon and the stars set in his or her eyes. Because she or he was going to make me happy. We did not get married for the glory of God. I was unsaved. How can I get married for the glory of God? And yet every marriage is for the glory of God, saved or unsaved. And don't pull this fast one, dear ones. If you got married when you were unsaved, don't say that wasn't God's will for my life. I don't know how many times I've heard that. There are no accidents. This is not an accidental marriage. This is your husband. This is your wife by covenant, whether you were saved or not, when the marriage took place. Place, But here's the thing, even many Christians get married with the wrong idea about marriage. She or he is going to fulfill me. She or he is going to make me happy. We are to get married, foremost, like everything else in our life, for the glory of God. We're to go to school for the glory of God. We're to go to work for the glory of God. We're to go play, I don't know why it came to mind, but soccer For the glory of God, if if it's at all possible. Baseball, much easier. For the glory of God. So love suffers long, saints. That's the first definition of love. Why? Why? Because we don't want to suffer long with anyone. We don't want to suffer a little. Love suffers long. But it goes on. And is kind. Love suffers long and is kind. Kind regardless of what the other is doing, how the other is responding. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, doesn't create evil out of thin air. I know your motives. Let's not go there, right? Deal with facts, right? If there are facts that need to be dealt with, a behavior that's destructive, right? If there's lipstick on the collar... Don't dismiss it lightly. I've known wives that have to their own destruction. 
That's a fact. That's an issue. That needs to be dealt with. And we need hard answers. But don't create lipstick on the collar. (laughs) Don't fabricate things out of thin air. And don't do this. I've heard this. He would look in lust at times. We're not even talking pornography, but just he would look in lust at times, a wife once said. Therefore, he's committed adultery in his heart. Therefore, I can divorce him. Oh, really? We'll create all sorts of justifications for not suffering long, for not being kind, for not loving our spouse. Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, so we don't join together or lead the other in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things. Again, not foolishly, not blindly, but generally, yes, bears all things, believes all things. My caveat there is because of experience. I've been a pastor for well over 20 years now. And when a husband is coming home or not coming home at all hours of the night, smelling of alcohol, and has odd stories about where he was, that needs to be dug into. I've learned that from experience. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's the definition of love, and it's high. It's high and unattainable except through the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's what you're aiming for, husband. That's what you're aiming for, wife. And that's what the Spirit of God will empower you to live as you humble yourself broken before Him. And again, let me tell you from experience, as an unregenerate, wicked sinner who married a woman out of completely selfish desires and had to fix it. Once God saved my wretched soul. And I can't fix it. I don't have the power to fix her, much less me. But God has the power. So what do I do? I humble myself day by day, hour by hour, fight by fight, minute by minute. Before I walk in the house, I'm praying. Before I even get home, I'm praying in the car. I'm singing hymns to get my heart and mind right so I can love her as Christ loved the church. No matter what's thrown at me, I'm throwing nothing back but love. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint a bad picture of my wife. She was unregenerate, unsaved. I drug her off from her family to California and abandoned her without a car every day, all day, while I went off in Marine Corps adventures. It was a bad spot to be in. She didn't want to be in it very much. I get it. Plus, I was a completely different guy from the guy she married. I go to boot camp, one guy, I come back another. And it wasn't just the haircut. The Lord radically changed me. And so I have compassion for where she was at. And yet I loved her and I loved the Lord. And so I held tenaciously to her and tenaciously to my marriage. And I knew that except through the power of God, we would not make it. And so I knew we had to make it to church. I knew I had to be in the word. I knew I had to be in prayer. I knew I had to memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, and pray through it point by point regularly and check my own heart and life regularly, or we wouldn't make it. 1 Peter 4, 8 speaks of the power of love, and above all things, have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Men, you're sinners. Ladies, you're sinners. We are desperately in need of love in a covenant marriage where two sinners are bound, chained together By indissoluble covenant, we need love because love covers a multitude of sin. We need it in all our relationships, but we desperately need it in marriage. Proverbs 
10.12 says, hatred stirs up strife. Do you want to know, are you hating your husband or wife? Are you stirring up strife? Again, there are times that there are issues, legitimate issues that need to be dealt with because the issues are, are breaking down the relationship and marriage. So they need to be dealt with in the light of day. But there are many other times where we're not dealing with issues that need to be dealt with constructively. We're just looking for a fight. We're just stirring up strife. And what's the Bible call that? Hatred. Hatred stirs up strife. But love, in contrast, covers all sins. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all sins. Not blindly, again, but a universal truth. So, God's plan for marriage. God's definition of love. And again, where do we get the power to do it? Not in you, not in me. I can't love like that. I can't. Like Christ loved the church? Are you kidding me? Except that the Spirit of God empower me. The first fruit of the Spirit, love. Which again is why you must humble yourself. If you have not gotten on your knees cried out to God, if you have not fasted and cried out to God, don't dare complain about your husband or wife. Complain about you. Oh Lord, why am I so wretched that I would not humble myself before you and seek your resources, the resource, the Holy Spirit of God within me and the power thereof that I might love my husband or wife. And so take ownership of your own sin, your own neglect of the power of God, your own your own pride and not humbling yourself before God and seeking His strength and power that you might facilitate love and joy and peace and strengthen your marriage for the glory of God and the honor of His name. I've said that it's an indissoluble union. Let me just touch on that briefly. Marriage is an indissoluble union. Luke 16, 18 is kind of the summary statement of the Lord Jesus. We could go broader than that in Mark 10 and in Matthew. But Luke 16, 18, for the sake of time, because we want to get to parenting and children as well. Luke 16, 18 says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And I'm just going to leave that there and say... Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her commits adultery. That's all the Lord Jesus said in Luke 16 on divorce and remarriage. Do I want to have grace for divorcees and those that have remarried? Yes. And so where is the grace? Don't ever do it again. (laughs) Repent. Don't ever do it again. But that grace toward those that are divorced and are remarried can't go back and assault the high walls God has put up around marriage to protect it from divorce. And anyone who has experienced divorce should know that better than the rest of us even and should want to say to others, protect your marriage. Love your husband. Submit unto him as unto the Lord in all things righteous. Love your wife as Christ loved the church sacrificially. Fight for your marriage in the strength the Lord provides because divorce is not an option. Here's a rule of life and marriage. The D word is unmentionable. 
It is unmentionable. It's not on the table. It's not a discussion point. It's unmentionable. It's not even just unmentionable. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Why? Because you are a Christian. Christ bought you with His blood. He owns you. He possesses you. And your life's breath and every fiber of your being is for the glory of God. And He has forbid it. Yes, there's more that can be said about marriage and divorce. But this is not a message on marriage and divorce. I'm just going to stand on the stark, strong defense of marriage that the Lord Jesus gave here today and say, it's not on the table. It's not in your mind. It's not coming out of your mouth ever. That's God's design for marriage. In short, this could be a message series for months. This is, if you will, an inoculation against the devil's assault on the family that began in the Garden of Eden and continues today. And first, the devil assaults the marriage. The devil assaults the husband. The devil assaults the wife and tempts them through every means possible to circumvent God's order or to radically disobey God's order and to undermine their marriage or even throw out that D word or even throw out a document with a D word on it and go down that road of marital destruction. And so we reject that out of hand and embrace God's design, His good design for His glory and our blessing and sanctification. And our blessing is the foundation for raising godly offspring. A godly marriage committed to God's design, is the foundation of godly offspring. How do we get godly offspring? Well, by grace alone, through faith alone. I mean, yes, they, they've got to come to Jesus. Yes, they do have to come to Jesus. But you know who's on the front lines of that battle for those children coming to Jesus? Mother and father. And you know, it's very hard to say to your children as you smoke, don't smoke. It's very hard to say to your children as you defy God and rip the marriage covenant apart either through an actual divorce or just through ripping it apart day by day by day. It's very hard to say to them, obey Jesus. Don't rebel against your Creator. Bend your knee to Christ and confess Him as Lord. And so our marriages matter. Marriage is the fabric of all society. Marriage is the foundation of the next generation being godly offspring. As a husband and wife strive together in God's design to raise them up, both committed to that end, right? You don't only have the foremost issue of your life belongs to God and it's for the glory of God. But secondly, which again means you didn't get married to fulfill you. You got married to glorify God and to fulfill His plan for mankind. And if you get to be gloriously happy in that, if your life is a fairy tale marriage in that, wonderful! If it's something short of that, well, good news, life is short. It is. It's really short. And eternity is long. And if you endure a less than fairy tale marriage, or even a really hard marriage, with a difficult woman where you read Proverbs and you're like, oh yeah, it would be better to dwell on the roof of the house. But Lord, give me hope, <laughs> give me strength, and give me love. Or with a jerk of a husband. Oh, 
How am I going to put up with this man? By your grace alone, Lord, another day. If that was your marriage all your life, do you not think the Lord, do you not think your Lord is faithful to reward you? Do you not think you'll be blessed by your Father who loves you? That you loved Him more than you loved your happiness in your marriage? Now, I want your marriage to be happy. I want you to be blessed in it. And the more you embrace God's design, the more you will be blessed in it, the more God will be glorified in it. But I don't want you to live for happiness. You live for the glory of God. And when you live for the glory of God, you'll find happiness in living for the glory of God. In whatever life circumstances, marriage, children, extended family, job, home, neighborhood, state, you'll learn like Paul to be content in whatever state you are because you live for the glory of God. But you also live for those offspring God gave you, for their eternal life. And your marriage is the foundation that you stand upon to say, follow me as I follow Christ. It's like the platform I'm standing on right here today. I'm a little bit elevated. So you can all see me and all hear me. And so the word of God is elevated and I can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's follow him together. Let's all submit ourselves unto the Lord and his word. The platform of your life as parents is your marriage and you don't want to destroy or undermine that platform as you say to your children, follow me as I follow Christ. Godly husbands provide a basic issue of husbandry. God has commanded us to provide. Now there will be seasons of greater provision or less and we need to learn to live within our means and so forth. But in God's design from the beginning... Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Why? Because that frees Eve up to do what? Love those children and raise them in godliness. Not that the husband's unengaged, but it frees her up to do so. And if at all possible, that's the design. Now, I do say if at all possible. You know, there are places in the world where it's hand-to-mouth existence, where they're struggling to survive. And if, if wife doesn't struggle a bit in the field or wherever, they're not going to make it. I certainly get that. But living in the richest nation of the world, we are not in that position. We should struggle as men by the sweat of our brow, dealing with those thorns, to free our wives up to be foremost homemakers in a Proverbs 31 manner in order that they might raise up godly offspring and in order that they might make a home that is a peaceful place, a nurturing place, a restful place for you so you can go home and get strengthened to go back out to battle once again. And so the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. In Genesis 3, after the fall, our labor was cursed, but it still was our labor, our responsibility. Then God said to Adam, Genesis 3.17, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. He's not talking to Eve, man, he's talking to Adam. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are to dust you shall return. Now to the woman he addressed childbirth, because that's her foremost role and ministry in life. To men he addressed that field and the sweat of your brow and the thorns therein. Because by God's design, that's going to be part of the primary place of your labor in your life. 
In Proverbs 6, 6, it says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise in your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Sluggard. Sluggard, the Bible calls it. That's a biblical term. Fathers need to teach your sons about sluggards. And don't be one. There are sluggards all over our community now. It's become the big moral thing to support sluggardly behavior. We can't support it. We need to love them. They're fellow human beings. But we don't aid in a bed a sluggard sin. It's a sin called sluggardliness. It's tragic. It's not manly. It's not God's design for men. And what burdens me more than anything as I see out in our community, I see women connected with these sluggard men. And I think, oh, dear woman, especially if it's a young woman, I think, why are you with this man? Where's your father? Go home. Get away from this man. He's got you on the street. Proverbs twelve twenty four: the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. The Bible pulls no blows, man. Sluggard, lazy man. The Bible pulls no blows. We don't want to be in that category. Proverbs 14, 23, In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Proverbs 21, 25, The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. We can't be those men, men. Why? Well, because the Bible says, but that's Old Testament, Pastor. That's the harsh portion of the Bible. We live in the New Testament, do we? You want New Testament? All right, let's go there. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, New Testament. For even when we were with you, we commanded you. Well, that doesn't sound very New Testament. Commanded you? Yeah, commanded you. That's New Testament. We commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. That would revolutionize San Francisco, Portland, now Hillsboro. When you get hungry, guess what you do? Eat or steal. But if you actually pay repercussions for stealing and jail's not a happy place with cable television and a weight set and three squares a day, you decide, hey, you know what? I don't want to steal. I don't want to sit around. I would really like a job. I really would. You've got a training course for me so I can get training and get a... Oh, that, that's phenomenal. And you would value that. But when it just handed out and handed out and handed out, you're trapping them in their own sin. And you're teaching other sinners that, hey, that's a good course of life. I can go that same sluggard, lazy man way, and it's going to be good for me too. Which, of course, there's also drug and alcohol abuse and other crimes being committed in that lifestyle. But the Word of God is clear. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And hear me, it's not compassion to give handouts to sluggards. You're actually enslaving them to their own sin nature. It's not compassion. Now, don't treat them poorly. They're human beings, creating the image of God. We need to love them, speak true to them. But a cash handout is the last thing they need. And I have attempted many, many times to have a meal with them so I could talk with them. And only on a few occasions have I been successful. Most of the time, you know what they do? Hate me. They don't want food. Now, if you're willing just to drop it off, sure, you've seen. They'll have a stack of food sitting there, but they're still there. They're still there. And I see the sluggards around my house 
You know what they do when they get a pocket full of cash? They walk over to Starbucks and buy the most expensive food and beverages in our community. Or they walk over to Safeway and they buy alcohol, which is generally what they're after. So there's no wisdom there. There's no application. I was once young and poor, but not a sluggard. You know what I bought so I wasn't hungry? Peanut butter and bread. Because you can live a long time on peanut butter and bread and not be hungry. First Timothy 5.8, again, New Testament. If anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, that's strong. That sounds a lot like the Old Testament. No, it sounds like the Bible. There's a consistent message from God that men were designed by God to work and to provide. And if we won't, we're not to eat. If we won't, we're behaving in a way that's worse than an unbeliever. Worse even than an unbeliever. Why? Because the average unbeliever works and provides for his family, generally speaking to most cultures, even non-Christian cultures. And so this is part of God's design for family and marriage. And it's a vital portion of it. It's a vital portion of God's design. Now, God's plan for parenting. God's plan for parenting. Ephesians 6 Verses 1 through 4. Ephesians 5 was marriage, right? Wife, husband. Ephesians 6, parents and children. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may be well with you, and you may live long in the earth. And your fathers, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Father... The discipline of your children is not primarily mother's job. It's primarily your job. But it can't be only your job because you're going to be off at work. So mother must be there as well. But fathers, you're to lead in this. And mother, you're to follow. Father, lead. Mother, follow. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. We are to train and admonish our children so they're no longer fools or they're out from under our authority. No longer fools. That's harsh. No, the Bible says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Children are not born wise, parents, moms especially. Children are not born wise. They're born fools. They are. It's the sin in them that makes them foolish. They must be made wise through the means that God has provided. And so we have admonition and training. What is admonition? Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 says, these words as I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Admonition, verbal instruction. Admonition. From the head down to the heart. You're aiming for the heart. Admonition. And so it's a constant instruction as you go, as you sit, as you lay down. Through daily life, constant instruction. You're living it out and you're speaking it out. Not just Sunday school, not just church on Sunday and or Wednesday, but daily living out and speaking out admonishment from the Word of God. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Admonition. 
2 Timothy 3.15 in the New Testament says this, From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father and mother, from childhood they have known the Holy Scriptures. This is Paul writing to Timothy because his righteous mother and grandmother had taught him the holy scriptures from childhood that are profitable for what? Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And we need to use the holy scriptures for that. Doctrine, but not just doctrine. Reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Hear me. Some parents labor to teach their kids all sorts of highfalutin doctrine way before they're ready for it, way before they can comprehend it, but I wouldn't fault that so much if they were laboring to instruct them in righteousness with reproof and correction. You cannot lay off reproof, correction, and instruction righteousness and focus in on doctrine. You've got your kid you know, having memorized this, and this catechism, that catechism, and he can reiterate it from heart. He learned the ABCs, you know, A is for Adam, a sinner before a holy God, on and on and so forth but you're not applying the basic commands of God to correct the sin in that child's heart. You're doing that child a great disservice. And what he or she will be is a great heretic one day who takes all that truth you taught them and twists it around backwards because that rebel heart was never subdued. The foremost job of parents with young children is to subdue the rebel heart. Subdue the rebel heart. They must obey you. They must Your word is law. And in that, you're teaching them to obey God. So the admonition part of parenting, it does start from birth. But hear me, that portion grows higher and higher percentage-wise the older they get. The training part of parenting is what definitely starts from a young age and continues for a long time. And hopefully the more faithful and consistent you are in it, the more diminished it will become percentage-wise. But the training of the children is that physical aspect. While verbal correction is an essential part of admonition and training, the rod is our Lord's prescribed method to drive sin and foolishness from the hearts of our children. Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loves, He corrects just as a father, the son in whom He delights. Do you delight in your children, fathers, or do you hate them? Do you delight in your children, mothers, or do you hate them? For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 10.13 says, A rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. And that's speaking of adults. What's the best thing for criminals? The best criminal system is, is what we find in the Scriptures. What do you find in the Scriptures? Do you find long prison systems? No. You either find the death penalty or the rod and restitution. They pay back for their crime, but they feel the weight of their crime in their back. And they think, ah, 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 I see that was a bad thing to do. I won't do that again. That actually is far better for both the criminal and society because it changes, or is at least more likely to change, knowing the, the sinner's heart, it changes the behavior which leads to blessings for the individual criminal's life who's a criminal no more, and for society as a whole. 
So that's written for mankind in general. The rod is for the back of whom is devoid of understanding. And then Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I, I just would exhort you parents of children to anchor yourself to that truth. That is God's truth. And any man who comes, any psychologist who comes, any unbiblical modern man, woman, parent, whoever they are, friend, mother, grandmother, who comes saying, oh, no, 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 or only in very rare circumstances, they're, they're a liar and the truth is not in them. Believe God, not man or woman. Believe God. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. He who loves his child disciplines him promptly. When there is defiance, direct defiance, that's a discipline promptly time. When there's a lie, that's a discipline promptly time. And the more consistent you are in that, guess what? There's no longer defiance. When you say, come here, they come here. When you say, stop that, they stop. When you say, you need to do this, they do it. When you say, you need to eat that, they eat it. A reasonable portion of a reasonable food, reasonably seasoned. <laughs> if you say you need to get up, they get up. If you say it's time for bed, it's time for bed. And you're not just training them to go to bed or eat food. You're training them to obey God. And when you allow defiance, or worse yet, when you train defiance into them by saying to do it and then letting them not again and again and again and again, when you let them win that battle again and again, you're training them to defy God. That's what you're training them to do. You're not parenting them. You're unparenting them. We must be consistent we are God's authority. And what we say is law. It's time for bed. It's time to eat. This is actually what is supper. I know it's not that good, but don't tell mom. But I'm going to eat it too. We'll suffer through together. But you're going to eat it. You eat what's put in front of you. You go to bed when it's bedtime. You get up when it's time to get up. You're quiet when you're told to be quiet. You answer when it's time to answer. Why? Because there's a God in heaven. That's why. And because you are subject to him. And he's given you parents that he commands you to obey. And it's our job to make the children obey because we love them. And we want them to learn to love God and not be rebels against God. If they're rebels against us, they'll be rebels against God. Can they get saved regardless? Yes, they can. But we're on the front lines to fight a good fight for their souls. Therefore, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. If you love them, discipline them promptly and consistently. Proverbs 19, 18, chasten your son while there is hope. You hear me? The further you go, the less and less hope there is. The further you allow rebellion to grow in their hearts. Defiance to grow in their hearts. The more you teach them that rebellion and defiance are rewarded with a treat, or, or with sleeping in, or with staying up late, or with not eating supper, but getting something else they wanted later. So you're like their slave. Mom, you're not your children's slave. Let me free you. You're not your child's slave. It's kind of you to make food for them every day, nutritious food, and put it before them. They need to eat it. It's not food to order. They're not giving orders. You are. You are. Because you love God and because you love them. Again, Proverbs 19, 18, Chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. That's heavy. That's heavy. Chasten your child while there's hope 
And don't set your heart on his destruction by not chastening him. Don't set your heart on his destruction. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, caveat, is it instantaneous? No. It's consistency. Consistency. What is in their heart? Foolishness. Sin and foolishness. Rebellion. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Well, how far? As far as God and his sovereignty allows. That's true. But it's God's means to drive that foolishness, the foolishness of rebellion, the foolishness of pride, the foolishness of defiance, far from them. Some children require more consistency, right? More frequency. If they defy more often, guess what? The frequency of correction is more often. The, chi- it's kinda, the child decides, right? What the child doesn't decide is when he or she's going to get up, go to bed, eat, obey. The child doesn't decide that. The child will decide the frequency of their correction, right? The child is not God. God is in heaven, and he's given you the parent to teach them that God is in heaven, and he rules over them. Oh, the precious lessons we're to teach them day by day, moment by moment, meal by meal, bedtime by bedtime, precious, vital lessons. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold correction from a child. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Parents, you desperately need this. Do not withhold correction from a child. God commands you not to withhold it from a child. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. What's that saying? If you beat him with a rod, he'll not die. So it must be sufficient to where they say, wow, I really don't want to do that again soon. So it's not a meat club through a diaper because all that does is shake them around a little bit and then they go off like, what was that about? And do whatever it was they're doing again which is why the Lord prescribes a rod on the backside because a rod is lightweight. It provides sufficient sting. It will do no permanent damage, but it's going to light up the synapses from the seat of understanding up to the heart to say, woohoo, I don't want to do that again anytime soon. And every time, no matter what the infraction is, no matter what the infraction is, it teaches them there's a God in heaven that they are subject to and that when they break his law, and the first law, the first human law is what? The first manward horizontal law is what? Honor your father and mother. Every time you allow your child to defy you, you say sit, they stand, you say be quiet, they're loud. Eat, they don't eat. Go to bed, they don't. Get up, they don't. You're teaching them to dishonor father and mother when you allow that and defy God. Now, let me throw some grace your way. We are all imperfect parents. I'll raise two hands. Imperfect parent. Inconsistent. But we can't get comfortable with inconsistency. And if you allow it, and when I say it, I'm talking about that child. If you allow it, it will train you. It will master you. It will have lordship over you. It will make you a slave. He or she will rule your house and your life. And you will not have peace You will not have joy. Christmas, birthday parties, Saturdays, Sundays, getting to church, all become points of misery where they should be points of joy because the discipline was not provided as God commanded. Explicitly. Explicitly. And that becomes, guess what? 
a detriment to the marriage even. A huge stress in the marriage. In so many cases, marriages dissolve because mom and dad, they just, they're fed up. They're fed up. And one or both are, are bailing because they can't take the stress as if it's going to get better after, after divorce and it'll just get worse. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 19, 17, correct your son and he will give you rest. Do you want rest in the home? Do you want a peaceful Christmas? Do you want a happy Saturday? Correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. One more caveat. We live in an age where our culture wants to give every child a disability, especially boys. They all have ADD, ADHD, ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder. That one I happen to ascribe to. Yes, all boys have oppositional defiant disorder. They sure do. Even if all those things exist and all your kids have all those things, do you think they need Proverbs and biblical parenting less or more? If anything, more. It doesn't change God's plan for their blessing and for peace in your home and for them to come to repentance and faith in the one true God, to curb the rebel heart. In our culture today, we want to give every kid an alphabet on top of them and then say that means they're the exception. That means we don't parent them biblically. Every child is to be parented biblically because every child is created in the image of God and every child is precious and should be brought as much as is in our power to a place where they come to repentance and faith in Christ. So we labor knowing it's utterly dependent upon God as if it's utterly dependent upon us. We labor to curb that rebel heart and bring it beneath the king that they might cry out in repentance and saving faith. And these are the means that God has given us. Did you notice we went from like Proverbs chapter 3 all the way to nearly the last chapter because it's through and through. And do you know what Proverbs is, what, what that book is? It's a wisdom book. It's written to make you wise. If we neglect what Proverbs says about how to be parents, we're being foolish. And we will raise fools who defy and deny God. Who I've got to go capture on the streets of Portland waving a Antifa flag. May God spare you that. Hear and heed the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. This is your inoculation against the devil's assault on your family, your marriage, and your children. And the devil's a good liar. He's a good liar. And there are many spreading his lies who profess to be Christians and maybe are. Believe God about family, about marriage, about parenting. And obey him for the glory of God, for your blessing, the blessing of your husband, your wife, your marriage, your children, and your grandchildren. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these vital words. May they protect our marriages, protect our children. May they result in godly offspring, which is your goal. May they result in joy and peace. May they result in you being glorified in our families, individually and corporately. And Father, may we walk together graciously, iron sharpening iron, encouraging one another in love and good works, in marriage and in family. We commit it all to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.